Well, good morning, everybody. So one of the things that I am known for around here is my incredible artistic ability. And so when a whiteboard comes out, uh, I have drawings that illuminate and inspire. Um, actually, just the opposite. I confuse people because all it is is just lines on a board. I was not blessed uh, with artistic ability, drawing, but but I was daydreaming while Tina was giving the announcements, and I came up with uh, the perfect, sorry, but um, inspired, not daydreaming. Um, we spoke about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego a few weeks ago. So I think the perfect pumpkin that would definitely win the competition, take a pumpkin, put a candle in the middle, put three Lego guys inside, and cut out a little window, and that is the fiery furnace, and that would win. Uh, you can be done that in about five minutes, and you can thank me later for the wonderful idea. Um, or beat it. If you could beat that idea, um, best of luck to you. So, uh, I just have one other really announcement. It's kind of a prayer request and a praise at the same time. Uh, tomorrow begins St. John's Nursery School, and so uh, we are super excited for that. A lot of work has gone into getting us here. We are about one month later than we would typically be, um, but due to COVID, due to um, you know change in the nursery school director position, we've really needed that month. Um, but I just want to, you know, say thank you to all those who have worked. Um, Andrea Targonsky, you know, working through the summer to try to keep us on board and up to date with what was going on. And then, uh, Heather, you've been amazing since you have come on board. You have worked. Um, I see Heather's van here at all different hours of the day, and um, she has worked tirelessly, and so we're grateful for that. And then staff, um, teachers, and aides have been here for the last two weeks, but even before that, we're in and out, you know, uh, doing the normal preparation for the year, but also the COVID preparation and just trying to do the things necessary to make kids safe and to make parents feel secure in the safety of their kids. So we are excited for tomorrow and uh, want to invite you just to pray for that and pray for that transition and uh, super excited that that's part of uh, the ministry and you know the vision and the mission that we have here as a congregation. Uh, a couple things to keep in mind, uh, the church office is open as normal, but uh, given state guidelines and some other things taking place, let me just tell you, if you can uh, not show up at the church office at the 9 o'clock moment, the 11.30 moment, the 1.30 moment, or the 4 o'clock moment, uh, drop off and pick up this year is going to be at four different locations, and so it is normally a busy time, it is going to be a chaotic, well hopefully not chaotic, it is going to be a complex time. Um, across the facility, and so um, if you need to drop by the church office and can do it at not one of those times, uh, 9, 11, 30, 1, 30, or 4, that would really be tremendous, uh, but we're just excited for everything to get uh, started tomorrow with that. So uh, we've been talking this fall about God moments, and you know, God moments, we began the first week talking about uh, there are two words in the Greek language for time. Chronos is where we get the word chronology. Or chronological, and it's the ongoing time, like sand through the hourglass, second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, just the time that elapses. And chronos is a legitimate view of time because that's how we track time, it's how we measure time, it's how we refer to time. Uh, the other word is kairos, and kairos are those moments in time. And so it, it's interesting to talk about, and you know, as time elapses, it's another thing to talk about having the time of your life or having a great time. We refer to time in terms of moments in addition to just the collection of, you know, just time that elapses. And so it's important to recognize both aspects inside of our lives, but where we're focusing with God moments is these are those kairos moments. 
And some of them are giant, and some of them are you know, medium-sized, and some of them are small, but our life is marked by moments. And so if the analogy, if your life was you know, a timeline, and it, and it began with a, a beginning, and it's going to end, at least on, on this earth, with an ending point, your life is more than just the line, because along the line are dots. There are dots of when something happened inside of your life, maybe that was negative. There are dots when something tremendous happened, positive. There are dots of decisions. There are dots of circumstances. There are things along our life, again, whether small, medium, or large, that really define us, and not just define, but kind of set the trajectory or a change in course, oftentimes inside of our lives, those kairos moments. And what we mentioned inside of Scripture is that God has displayed a, a willingness an ability and a pattern inside of scripture of meeting and transforming people's lives in the power of a moment. And that while God is able to use the chronos, and so across the chronos there have been people who have invested inside of your life. Across the chronos you have heard, you know, messages, you've done daily devotions, and God meets us in the chronos, but yet also there are those kairos moments where something happens that either shifts the trajectory or is a powerful reminder or galvanizes faith. Our life is marked not just by the ongoing chronos, but by those moments, those kairos moments in time. And so the, the subtitle, if you will, you know, that we've been using is how you remember yesterday determines how you will live tomorrow. That these uh, kairos moments become th things that bring clarity to, to our lives. They bring remembrance, which kind of encourages us. Oftentimes, they remind us of the change that has taken place. And so that is kind of uh, really, in a nutshell, what we're talking about over the course of these six weeks. Now, as we get down to it, we're going to break it down a little bit more uh, specifically. And so last week, we talked about amazing rescue, that there are moments of amazing rescue. And sometimes, um, you know, in terms of physical circumstances, but for all of us, in terms of a moment of salvation, that, that God is, is in the work and about the business of transforming and stepping in and rescuing, intervening inside of situations. I want to show you where we're going over, over the next uh, four weeks as we continue, continue to look at not just amazing rescue, but we have a few more. There we go. Um, moments of holy attraction is what we're going to talk about today, and I'm going to get to that a little bit because we don't normally use that kind of language. Uh, to talk about moments of unearned blessing where you know the provision of God that's been at work inside of your life. Moments of revealed truth and moments of valuable adversity that God is able to take even the not-so-good moments and to use them um, again, to bring clarity, to bring conviction, to bring change inside of our lives. Now, the reason I want to share this with you is uh, a book that we have been using called The God Moment Principle, and it was written by a um, uh, man whose last name is Wright. Um, and uh, what he uh, lays out for us, Alan Wright does, is in, deep inside of the Old Testament, God weaves this into the fabric of what the people of God were meant to be. And so in Leviticus 23, there are five uh, feasts, five festivals that are commanded for the Jewish people to um, recognize and, and to participate in and to make a part of their lives. Now, Leviticus was, was written and kind of formulated during that period of wandering years, those 40 years in the desert. And so God took those 40 years as the people of God were walking through the desert in between bondage and promised land to kind of teach and train them of how to be a peculiar people, how to be his. And as part of that, he, he appoints uh, different times throughout the season of the year, throughout the year, different times of remembrance, of celebration, 
and of consecration. These moments were not meant to manufacture God moments, that somehow we can put a God moment on the calendar, but throughout our year there are things that remind us of God's faithfulness. Throughout the course of our year, we need to build things in that help us remember what God has done, that helps us then resolve and recommit ourselves to what lies ahead. Throughout our year, there are seasons and and things inside of our lives that take us back to and need to take us back to what is most important about who we are. So Bill read a verse last week that says we no longer are, you know, bound by, you know, festivals and celebrations and, you know, part of like the old covenant and the law and what's reminded there. So we're not here to say, make sure as a Christian that you celebrate these things. What we're here to say is that woven into the fabric of who we are as the people of God is a call to remembrance. And that regularly throughout our year to take time to remember the things that God has done. And so in Passover, his amazing rescue, as we'll talk about in a minute, the fact that God is drawing us to himself, that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift, that God is the one who revealed and gave uh, a law and communicates with us, that even in the times of adversity, God is faithful and God is present. And that when we do that, again, it kind of galvanizes our faith. So throughout this whole series, we want to ask and we want to know, what are your God moments? And I think it's important that we remember them, and I think it's even important sometimes that we write them down. This was kind of a a difficult message, but about a year ago, uh, we talked about what it looks like to die well, or be prepared that even the final testimony of our life would give glory to God. I mentioned inside of that that oftentimes when I sit with families after a loved one has passed and I say, tell me about your dad, I hear things like, well, he, he was a good man. He worked really hard. He was honest and caring. And he loved us. And, you know, I, I, I try to have as much compassion and empathy and, you know, like people are grieving inside of this moment, but I want to say, all right, come on. Tell me a little bit more because you've just described what hopefully is every dad inside of society. Not necessarily the case, but hopefully every man inside of society. But tell me a little bit more. And and inside of grief, it is so hard to pinpoint and to pull out those deeper memories. And eventually, you know, if you ask enough questions, people begin to share. But it is almost, I won't say a joy, but it is such a blessing to be sitting in a living room that when I ask that question, they pull out dad's Bible. And they say, you know, tucked in here was a poem that my dad never really read poetry, but this must have been used in a message sometime that meant something because he highlighted something and he kept it right here in the middle of his Bible. You know, if you flip to the back, there's a few statements that he wrote down that was obviously from a sermon that I preached. That's never been the case. Uh, I've never been quoted. But, you know, there are things written in the back of a Bible. There are highlighted verses. So when I ask the question, what verses were important to your dad, there are things that pop out. I think it's important that we just not only know our God moments and think about our God moments and share our God moments, but also that occasionally that we write them down, that we catalog them in such a way that they outlive us. Because sometimes we think maybe we're bragging or maybe my God moment was not, you know, big enough or important enough to go in any book somewhere or was it really a God moment? Was it just coincidence? I don't want to read too much into it. Like, We fail to write down the things that are maybe going to be an encouragement to us in the years ahead or maybe an encouragement to somebody else even after we're gone. So what are your God moments? 
Let me tell you a few, and these are not me, but these are real people. Uh, so Mark was a self-avowed atheist. He described himself as a hippie that he was in college in the late 60s and early 70s. And he thought the key thing was to amass as much knowledge as he can and as much enlightenment as he could to get a good job and to live his own life that was going to be free from all of the structures that his parents had him live underneath. And somewhere in towards the, the late 70s, he had gotten married, he had a new baby at home, and he had a job, but things just weren't turning out and feeling the way that he thought that they should turn out and feel. He was struggling at work, he was struggling to be a dad and to try to be the husband that he knew he should be, and um, he didn't think that religion was the answer, and he didn't want to just do, he wanted to be his own man, and so he descri described this as somehow inexplicably, inexplicably or without reason he stopped at the, the store because he didn't own one and he bought a bible and he went home and he locked himself in the basement for the weekend and he read the entire bible he was kind of an academic and he wanted to you know he didn't want to be have it filtered through a church or through a preacher or whatever else so he sat down and he read the bible from cover to cover he emerged coming out of that week still with tons of questions and it wasn't like a big light bulb went off but he then found himself in church and Eventually, he came to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and it transformed his marriage and his family and his service and his career. And now, uh, Mark, and, and has been for the past 30 years, is a leader inside of his church. Because inexplicably and without really any reason, he purchased the Bible and he read it through in a weekend. Jesse was a teenage delinquent. He describes it that he didn't so much do a lot of drugs as much as he sold a lot of drugs because he was kind of entrepreneurial and he was a rebel and he didn't want to just do the things that were expected. And so probably from the age of 14 to 18, he sold drugs and he hung with a crowd that bought the drugs that he was selling. He got caught a couple of times and after a couple of slaps on the wrists, eventually he really got caught and he was faced potentially with jail time because he was over the age of 18 or even, you know, possibly juvenile detention, but things did not look good for Jesse. One of the options that came in at the last minute was he could go to a rehab, and the one that was suggested that had an opening was in the next town over, but it was a Christian rehab. He really didn't have any interest in faith, no background in faith, but he said, um, you could handle Bible boot camp for three months if it meant not going to jail. So he signed up for Bible boot camp. And so while there at rehab, at first he was going through the motions, having to attend Bible study two or three times a day, kind of nodding along and, you know, sometimes snickering under his breath. And he said something happened about a month in. Inexplicably, without reason, he suddenly became interested. Not converted, not warm and fuzzy feelings, not crying in the middle of Bible study, but just interested. He doesn't know if it was the testimony of the staff or if it was the way that his peers were responding to what they were talking about, what they were reading. He doesn't know if, if it was even some great big experience where God kind of broke down all of his barriers, but something happened that that which was not interesting became interesting. Jesse came to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And when he got out of rehab, the interesting thing was he was a 19-year-old year with a felony 
no friends, or at least the friends he did have, weren't really the friends he wanted to go back and recultivate relationship with. And so there was a little bit of uncertainty, but he found a church and he found a young adult group, and eventually that young adult group had a single girl that he, he thought was attractive, so eventually he found a wife, and he's got a couple of kids, and he got a job, and went to grad school, and is now doing very well. And do you know what really made Jesse's God moment all the more special to me was uh, some of you, you've been involved through children's ministry and you develop these safe sanctuary policies that says what are the rules for working with kids and, uh, and youth. And so in there is when you do the background check, if something comes up, there's a group of people who get together and have a conversation about the person. I remember sitting in a meeting when Jesse's background check came back and he told us what we would know would be there and what we knew, knew would arise. And to listen to a group of people who didn't know Jesse very well, because he didn't grow up in the church. But they saw enough inside of the, I think at that time it was about three or four years, worth the, worth the time to say, absolutely, he should be teaching Sunday school. Because we've seen the difference and we know who he is. And we know what God has done inside of his heart. Julie was active in church. She was busy raising a family and giving herself to her career, but she was a faithful Christian. One day, though, a friend of hers asked her if she would lead Vacation Bible School that upcoming summer. She wasn't sure she really even liked kids that much. She was trying to like her own as much as she could who were at home, but she wasn't sure that kids' ministry was the thing for her, but she had a great deal of respect for her friend, and it's sometimes hard to say no to people at church when they're asking, they're, they're asking you to do things, especially if they say, you know, God told me to ask you this, and, you know, it's really hard to say no. So she agreed reluctantly and led Vacation Bible School that summer and then the next summer and then the next summer and eventually came on uh, a church staff part-time and then eventually full-time and has been in ministry now for 15 years, all because somebody asked her to do something and because somehow inexplicably and without reason she decided to say yes. Do you know God moments come in all shapes and sizes, and sometimes they're salvation moments, sometimes they're even pre-salvation moments, sometimes they're moments that take us into areas of ministry, sometimes they're just moments that we know that we know that we know that the Spirit of God is present inside of a moment. And so the, the word for today is holy attraction, and this word attraction we normally reserve to talk about like romantic relationships and you know, and people that we might be attracted to. But the idea of attraction is broader than that. And a few months ago when we were talking about uh, Paul's conversion, I mentioned to you that a Bible scholar named F.F. F. Bruce said that he would describe Paul's conversion as the magnet, the central magnet of his life changed from being law to being grace. And so if the central magnet of Paul's life, the thing that pulls everything together and arranges everything in the proper perspective and order shifted from being the law to being, you know, the person of Jesus Christ and his grace, and it reoriented Paul's entire life. I thought about that again this week when considering what a magnet does. You know, at times it seems to repel, and, it, and for some things it seems to attract. And those of you who are much better scientists than I am would have a much better description of that. But I think about, you know, when a magnet is in the presence of something, how it draws to itself. 
And I wonder if when we talk about this idea of holy attraction, is that what we're talking to, that, that God wants to occupy a place inside of your life, not that, that you just believe in him or live, in, live according to his moral code, or you show up somewhere on a Sunday morning or to a Bible study and we try to be good people and we believe in God because we don't want to be people who don't believe in God, but it goes much deeper that the relational influence, the same way that you would be attracted to somebody in a point that it would lead you into a, a romantic relationship that would lead you to an engagement that would lead you to one day stand at an altar and say, I do, the same kind of attractional pull, even more so inside of a relationship with the divine, is that work to kind of reorient our lives and to pull us, to draw us to himself. God's prompting, God's moving, God's drawing. The interesting, and sometimes, according to the, two, the, the three testimonies I shared, sometimes inexplicably and without reason, the things that were once not attractive to us are now attractive to us. The things that we were not interested in, we are now interested in. The things that once repelled us now somehow have appeal inside of our lives because of the one who is drawing us to himself. And so I want to look for just a couple of minutes at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, not because we need to take part in the feast or do what it commands, but again, I think it lays out a pattern for us to understand better these God moments. And so we're going to be in Exodus chapter 13. Now we get a brief description of this in Exodus chapter 12 in advance. And then after the Passover and after the people of God are led out and through the Red Sea and they begin their journey, uh, we come back and in chapter 13, this is the ordinance moving forward. After just what was done on that first night, this is now the command that in the future uh, for the people of God uh, to do and take part in. So Exodus chapter 13, beginning with verse number 3. Then Moses said to the people, commemorate this day, the day that you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord has brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today in the month of Aviv you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hivites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in the month. For seven days eat bread without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand, and you must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. And so there's a couple of festivals that chronicle this one event. The, the one is the Passover meal. And the Passover meal was a remembrance of the celebration of that night when God intervened and led his people out. And so the, the meal, you know, has certain things that make up, uh, uh, that, that Bill explained a little bit to us about last week, of, of what that meal is like that reminds them of that evening when they were let out. You eat it with your coat on because at any point God could come and, it, and it's going to be time to go. But interestingly, surrounding the meal itself is this 
feast that's supposed to go on for seven days. And the seven days are really a time of consecrating and of taking ownership, of taking stock inside of our lives. Now, the closest analogy might be of if we celebrate Lent, the difference between Lent and Easter. So if Easter is the celebration, the seven weeks leading up to Easter, Lent has traditionally in the church been a time of reflection, soul-searching, repentance. That's the idea of what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is supposed to be, that for seven days, get all of the yeast out of your house. No leavening agent at all in your house. It's almost if Passover was the celebration of the honored guest and the special guest is arriving, Unleavened bread is the spring cleaning. You get all the yeast out of your house in preparation for remembering that event. And so there's work involved in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It it is holy, but it's holy in that there is a purging that takes place within the home to get rid of that which can delay the release that God wants to give you to get rid of that which can distract you from what God is trying to do, to get rid of the things that that get in the way or could just kind of keep you from all that God has for you and disrupt the things that he wants to do inside of your life. Do you know when you see yeast inside of scripture, unless it's a literal reference to something with food, yeast almost always points to sin and equates with sin as, as a symbol inside of scripture. That a little bit can permeate the whole thing, that it goes a long way, that it has an influence upon that which it is within. And so it's almost as if God is saying, I'm going to do the amazing rescue part of things, but I need you along the way to do a couple of things also to prepare yourself to do what only I can do. Only God can part the Red Sea. Only God could allow Pharaoh to say, go ahead and let him go. Only God could send a death angel to strike down every firstborn in Egypt but skip over the houses of the Israelites. Only God could do all of that stuff, and so the big stuff is left to God, but along the way he says, I'm looking for a group of people who have enough faith in me and belief in what I'm about to do that they're willing to do a couple of small things along the way that that set up and prepare room for the big thing that's about to take place. And so you, will you just go through and get rid of all the, all the yeast out of your house? To not just remember the event, but to maybe even make room for what I want to do inside of your life now. So when we think about this idea of holy attraction, God's drawing us to himself, that the closer we get to him, it also means that we leave behind things that would distract us or delay us or disrupt what it means to follow after him. I want to give you four categories to think through, and the first two are about negative things inside of our lives, and the other two are about positive, but I think it goes both ways inside of life. And so the first way, I think, you know, the holy attraction aspect of of these kind of God moments is when God brings conviction for sin or conviction in the midst of temptation and then victory over temptation. That some of our God moments are that in a time where I was faced with a choice, God gave me the strength and the grace, and I chose to stand for what was right. Do you know when I hear those stories, almost always following after that is, I was walking along here at this level spiritually. And when I was willing and able to confront 
this area of sin and temptation inside of my life victoriously. It's almost like God took me from here to here. Not that I'm any better than anybody else, but that God was able to grow my faith as I stood firm for what I knew to be true. To stand up in the midst of temptation. Sometimes we run the risk of equating temptation with sin. That somehow the fact that temptation exists must mean that I'm already defeated. And we know that that's not true and that, and that 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that no temptation no temptation inside of our lives has seized you that is unavoidable, but God provides a way out, a way to stand up underneath, a, way, a temptation even that is common to every other person inside of this room. Now what you struggle with and what Satan might use to attack you is different than me, but we all face temptation. And yet there is victory because Jesus said that greater is he who is in you than he who is within the world. There is the capability and the potential for victory over temptation. You are not just destined to a life of sin after sin after sin, and thanks be to God that, you know, the only thing is the amazing rescue part, but there's also that God is drawing you to himself and that he can begin to reprogram your character to recognize and notice and stand up against sin by the power that he gives us through his blood. And so sometimes there's defeat because temptation comes and we choose wrongly. And there's grace and there's mercy in the midst of that. But sometimes God is able to grow our faith exponentially because inside of a moment, we choose to honor what we know is right and what we know is true. We need to stop making excuses. It's okay that God is able to redeem this part of my life and this part of my life and this part of my life, but after all, this thing over here, well... My dad had that habit, my mom had that habit, I live in a society that has that habit, and so we're just going to let this one go. We need to stop making excuses because I think one of the reasons we stay at this level spiritually is because we come, become content with a certain level of obedience inside of our life and a certain level of disobedience inside of our life. And I wonder if the magnet that he wants to draw us to himself is to increase the sensitivity we have towards temptation and sin inside of our life. All right, secondly, going beyond that, that sometimes I believe these moments of holy attraction are a wake-up call or seeing a negative pattern more clearly inside of life. And so this is not necessarily an individual temptation or individual areas of sin, but if there are these larger patterns that maybe in and of themselves are not sin, but they're just leading down a path that maybe opens us up to sin, or they're leading us down paths that maybe are not destructive and sinful, but aren't leading us into godliness. And there's a moment of perspective that comes and says, you know what, I could totally keep living like this, but I feel like God is calling me to live like this. You know, we were living this way, but what if we were to just make a slight shift and begin to live this way? Do I have to to earn his grace? No, but is it more in line with the character of my father? It's interesting, the prodigal son when it says he comes to his senses, his first rationale is not forgiveness and restoration. The first recollection is, you know, even if I go back and eat like the pigs at my dad's house, it's going to be better than where I am now. And you know, the, the attraction of home was more compelling than whatever shame he had to confront or stubbornness within himself that he had to confront or all the mistakes 
that the allure of home caused him to get up and to go back because he wanted to leave the pattern that he was in for even just the potential of a slightly different pattern back at home. A third thing, the way in which I, when I hear these stories of holy attraction, there's a new word, deeper desire towards a ministry or towards a need. That your life is moving along and, and all of a sudden an announcement that you had heard 15 or 20 times before in your life suddenly connects. And it's not just because, you know, you know, Tina said it so eloquently today, but maybe it's something that there's an announcement you heard that you think, all right, this year I'm going to do it, I'm going to join it, I'm going to be a part of this. You see a need, and, and you can't always respond to every need inside of your life, but maybe there's one particular situation that grabs you. And for this waitress on this day, you leave a, leave a $50 bill on the table rather than just do a normal 20% because you realize that there was something about her story that gripped your heart and you want to follow through. There are moments that I think if we grow more sensitive and in tune with what the Holy Spirit's doing inside of our life, that these moments of holy traction that God draws us to himself in order for us to make a difference with and through our lives. It starts with an opportunity. It starts maybe with an invitation from somebody else. But we take a step forward. And the last one, and this might be the, the largest category, that when I hear about moments of holy attraction, it's that there's a tenderness of heart and there's a refining and a renovating work of God inside of our lives. You know, when I was digging swimming pools, I would come home from college and work with concrete and uh, hand tools and outside in the midst of the summer. And so by the end of the summer, my hands that my dad called computer hands because they were not doing any physical labor for eight months, would come home and I would go back to school with just kind of these hard, calloused, scaly hands. I couldn't even really type right because I couldn't really feel as much as I used to feel. But you know what, what would happen is over the, the next month, as I, you know, washed my hands and stopped working with them and, you know, did less manual labor, and uh, occasionally, the, you know, over time, those calluses would rub down, and I'd begin to feel my fingers again, and I could go back to, to typing, and Rachel would allow me to hold her hand, you know, again after, you know, about a month's time, and those calluses would eventually wear down, at, and wear down, and there was more sensitivity. Inside of the book of Ezekiel, he talks about that, I want to take away your heart of stone and to give you a heart of flesh that you can begin to feel things a little bit differently. That areas inside of, our lives that, uh, inside of our lives that once grew calloused and hard might again become sensitized to the things of God and to the Spirit of God. I'm not a very emotional person. My joke sometimes is that I can count on one hand the number of times I cry in a year. Um, and that's probably still the case. But um, what I've found, though, is as I've grown a little bit older... And I think a little bit more mature in my faith that I find myself now, myself now a little bit more emotional than I used to be. That the things I feel now have a way of outwardly coming out and they're not just buried deep within my you know, brain and uh, they never get a chance to come out in my face or th you know, through my eyes. Um, I think there's something that begins to happen that as we grow in him, that he's able to take the hardness and to sensitize He's able to take the things that were once calloused and make them a little bit more 
sensitive to the things of his spirit. To hear him more clearly. To see the things that he's doing. To maybe be a little bit more open-handed with our lives that when an opportunity comes along, my first thought is not what will it cost me, but how can I help? To maybe recognize that when God is prompting and tapping at something inside of my life, I don't just give the excuse of, well, certainly there's other Christians who have that behavior or do that thing or say that thing. But my first response is, God, what is it that you're trying to do in me? Do you have God moments of holy attraction? When maybe the things that used to be unappealing to you are now appealing. The things that once repelled you are now attractive to you. Maybe the areas inside of your life that were once calloused are now sensitive and you can feel again. What are the God moments where God gets your attention and like a magnet begins to draw you closer to himself? And that has implications for how you live and how you speak and how you give of yourselves, and and what you do with your time, and what you do with your money, and and the expression on your faith, face, and how you handle difficulty, and how you deal with adversity, and, and how you're able to honor people that you disagree with, and how you're able to enter into situations where you don't have the answers, but you know you have to do something. Because God is doing something inside of our hearts that's not just, how do I become a better Christian so I can look better, But if the magnet's drawing me to himself, that should cause a difference to take place in who I am and how I live. Do you know with this God moment, it's possibly the one most attached to community. Other people are often involved in this God moment of holy attraction, but it's also when people describe it, it's the one that is the most personal that's between them and God. Because at the end of the day, it's a, it's a situation of nearness and closeness and intimacy. So let me ask you this morning, not is there some deep, deep area of sin you, wanna turn, you need to turn away from, although if that's the case, you want to do that. Not is there a need or a new area of ministry that God is calling you to, but if there is, you should follow through with that. Let me simply ask you today, are you more sensitive to the things of the Spirit now than you were five years ago? Do you feel like you can hear him better now than you could five years ago? Do you feel like the magnet is more powerful inside of your life to shift and to reorient the things that surround and fill your life? Is the magnet stronger now than it was five years ago? And if the answer is no, it's not that God is somehow mad at you or you're falling short as a Christian, but maybe it's just that in the the busyness and the distraction, maybe we just go on autopilot because there was a time when our life was a mess and our life is not a mess anymore and we've we've filled it with a bunch of good things and, and we're just kind of on autopilot and we're heading straight forward. But I don't think the goal of the Christian faith inside of your life is just to to save you and put you on a good path and say, all right, now put the cruise control on and I'll see you in heaven. But I think God's looking for a group of people who want to live that the magnet that's at work inside of the center of their life, that there's a drawing and we are receptive and we are responsive and we are sensitive to the things that he wants to do in us and he wants to do with us. 
So are you more sensitive to the things of the Spirit than you were five years ago? Can you hear him better now than you could five years ago? Is the magnet stronger now than it was five years ago? God, I pray that inside of this moment, Lord, that you would remind us even of those moments where we met you. Remind us of those moments where our faith took a step forward. Lord, that you would bring to mind those kairos moments inside of our faith, that they would be an encouragement to us and maybe even an encouragement to somebody else. And God, today we want to be people who hear you. We want to be people who walk step in step with you. We want to live in fellowship with you in such a way that we are responsive to the things that you want to speak and prompt and move inside of our lives. So Father, we ask that you would meet us here inside of these moments as we close. That you would go with us this week that we might walk in a richness of fellowship with you. And that you might use us to make a difference in the people and in the places where you've sent us. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.